Hi everyone, Paul here, and I just wanted to offer some thoughts to preface this episode of the Divided Families podcast, a conversation between Eugene and EJ Co. So for one, I think this episode made me appreciate and think much more critically about a notion of what a family ought to be. And a lot of us, especially in the States, think that you know, the nuclear family uh, always should be together and if uh, the parents or any part of the family decide to uh, separate off, then the only way to resolve that is for the family to be reunified physically in one place again. And as a member of a so-called um, geese family, as you'll hear about from EJ Cohen this episode, things don't always uh, work out happily ever after that way, especially after uh, so much time and distance and um and space for relationships to drift apart and language uh, to not be enough to communicate your full feelings with the other person. But speaking of communicating feelings, uh, what I felt was really powerful in this conversation was uh, when EJ Co. describes uh, the letters that she writes, the love letters that she's written to strangers uh, with asking for nothing in return. That did make me think of our own podcast letter campaign, uh, which I hope you will participate in. It's never too late to write a letter, a handwritten letter um, to family, friends, loved ones, even strangers during this time. So without further ado, here's Eugene and EJ Co. Thank you. Today I'm here with a very special guest, poet, translator, and now author of a memoir, E.J. Ko. Um, i probably say all of our guests are quote-unquote special, but E.J. is especially so for me because my life oddly in some ways follows hers. Her latest book, The Magical Language of Others, is a memoir that's anchored in a few letters from her mother. Um, and in the book, you can get both the translation and the original letter. And so yeah, as I was reading it, I discovered that my life follows the same path where I grew up in uh, the Bay Area in California. So when you write about Fremont and Santa Clara, that area, I saw myself in a lot of the images that you um, write about. And then eventually I moved up to Seattle where my family is and where we both currently are now. So, oh yeah. And thanks so much for your time, given a lot of the book events that you have recently. No, thank you so much. I think because we're both in Seattle, it's too bad we can't meet in person, but we're both isolated because of the state of emergency, but it's nice that we can do this um, online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Social distancing. <laughs> um, I actually, and so the growing up part, I definitely saw a lot of myself in your shoes, but then also recently, very recently, I've also seen myself at the end of the book, you go to the Seattle Asian Art Museum, that area, and I finished reading that like the day after I had visited um, that area. And it was the same kind of weather, you know, typical Seattle overcast weather. So yeah, for me, it was a very intimate experience reading the book. Um, I could see myself in a lot of the places. And the only other thing I wanted to say before making, you know, at the risk of making this introduction way too long is um, how I came to this book is actually super, uh, it's not 
super coincidental, but for me, it just felt kind of unique. So I was actually downtown in Seattle and I was, you know, ready to take my bus back home. And prior to that, I had texted my friend, hey, do you want to get dinner or something? No response. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to go home. And I was waiting at the bus stop and I see my bus coming. And then that's when I get a text saying, hey, like, let's get dinner or something um, in Capitol Hill. I was like, uh, like my the bus is here. I could go home or I could, you know, um, go hang out with my friend. And at the last minute, I just decided to go. Um, so I went up to Capitol Hill and then he said, oh, I'm going to be late. I was like, of course, you know, I missed my chance to go home. Now you're late. But that made me go to Elliott Bay. And then I had all of this time to wait. So I had like 20, 30 minutes. Um, and he kept texting me like, oh, sorry, I'm going to be even more late. Uh, so I was walking around and then I found your book um, in the either in the like recent, you know, popular book section or in the Pacific Northwest author selection. And yeah, I just sat down with it, read the first chunk and uh, ended up buying it and reading the rest of it. So very, very coincidental where, you know, if that didn't happen, um, this conversation would not be happening. But just wanted to share that because it just seems like a very Seattle thing um, with local bookstores and whatnot. So anyway, no big moral to that story. Just support your local bookstores. Um, you never know what you're going to find. And I really like that story. I, I think that's a really special story because it's almost like everything had to happen exactly that way, right, for you to come across the book. And that also sort of revs up and builds your own relationship with the book in a way that's unique to you. Um, so even the 30 minutes you had to wait or even before then missing your bus, you know, walking around that store till you till the memoir caught your eye. So I think, I don't know, all of that is maybe at that time seemed like not such a big deal, but I'm sure as us here speaking to each other and talking about this memoir and how it relates to you and your story, you know, it, it very quickly it becomes less about the memoir and more about your story and the things about your life that come through. And so I think all of that is special, right? That's where your story begins is, is right at that bus stop. Mm, yeah. And I think also part of it was... Uh, well, I think all of that is definitely true. And I guess on a simpler level, those moments of discovery of finding a new book, you know, one that you aren't looking for is pretty, I don't know, for me, uncommon these days where, you know, we can pick what we choose to watch and um, we don't have as many moments mm -hmm. of just sudden discovery uh, as it was the case when, you know, when I was younger and there was not as much internet, not as much media. You just go to the bookstore, see what you can find. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a uh, nice in many, many different ways. And yeah, I think that we'll see more of the how these coincidences kind of um, come together and play a role in our stories as we talk about your book. And also, I guess, as I see myself in the things that you say about your memoir, probably. So yeah, growing up, I knew a lot of families that were separated in the same ways uh, as yours was. I was just talking to a friend who actually told me about the term uh, Kiragi Kachoki's mm -hmm. family. Um, I was like, what's that? Isn't there a word for that? And he said, oh, that's this is what my family used to call ourselves. Actually, do you have anything <laughs> to say on that? I haven't heard that before, sort of the Skis family, but I like that that family came up with a word for it, a term for it, because I think when you come up with a word for something, that word starts to encapsulate so many personal things. And um, our family, we, we don't really have a word for the way we had lived or what we were going through. It, it sort of in generally when we're talking about it, and I speak to my parents just in Korean and my brother speaks to them mostly in English actually but we just call it those years right those years and we keep saying that sort of repetitively and I don't think we talk about it 
too much other than calling it those years. Mm. Oh, and sorry for those listeners who aren't familiar with the book. Uh, the situation, which um, I'll have you explain in a bit, but essentially it's where a lot of Korean families, a lot of Chinese families, and also this is very common for families in island states, so like the Marshall Islands, Jamaica, where one parent or both parents uh, leave the children behind with sometimes by themselves, sometimes with their grandparents, um, and they pursue a job in their quote-unquote home country uh, while the children stay in quote-unquote their home country. And yeah, I think that, um, well, I think that you can do a much better job of explaining your personal situation. But uh, before going into that, I just want to say essentially what we're trying to do here with this podcast episode is to kind of lay the foundation to draw some parallels with other episodes um, that speak to the same kind of phenomenon. And then also at the very end of this interview, I hope to get to a little bit of uh, what you think about foreign languages, especially as you know, you're a translator, you write poems. So um, I think that will also be a pretty good thing to talk about, especially in this, you know, very geopolitically themed podcast. So yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about your interest in your family history and the particular situation that you had for those who are unfamiliar? Right, right. So the story starts off pretty abruptly, I would say, when I was 14. Um, my father got this tremendous job offer in South Korea. And um, the next year, my my father and my mother took the offer and they moved to South Korea and they left me behind with my brother, who's four years older than me. So at the time, we were 15 and 19. And we had been living sort of closer to the Bay Area at the time, and so they moved us out 90 miles to Davis, California. It, it's very interesting. I, I had to, you know, sort of change schools, and, and my brother had to change his lifestyle, you know, wake up very early and take me to school. It was just sort of the two of us. I think at first the contract was for about, I believe, two years. And we thought as a family, we can really endure these two years. It was an opportunity for my father and my mother had to support him. But those two years became three, became five, seven. And by then I was, you know, older and in New York City. And so I didn't see them for another two years, which meant a total of nine years before I reunited with them in Seattle, Washington. So it, it's a long span of time. Um, by the time they were back, I was um, an adult. While they were gone, um, when I was living in Davis, I did sort of the usual teenage thing. You know, I did, you know, all the delicious drugs, all the fun drinking, but there were um, darker things. You know, I developed a severe eating disorder. I had bulimia, and I do have to say eating, all eating disorders are severe. Um, and I would attempt my life regularly because at the time I thought, why not? And during these years, my mother would write me a letter every week. She would write me from Korea in Korean in this sort of kitty diction because I didn't know Korean then the way I can sort of read and understand it now. And I would sort of mouth those letters to try and get at the meat of what they're trying to say, but I would also set them aside, put them away. And it wasn't until nine years later I was moving to Seattle that in a box I I found those letters. I found 49 of them. And at the time, it just, it was not planned to be this way, but I was a poet and also a translator. I didn't know what to do with those letters, but I took them to a mentor and a friend of mine. Her name's Dami Che. 
she's a local poet and translator and I remember I mean you're mentioning the Seattle Asian Art Museum and Volunteer Park that's where we were when she you know sort of told me I have to translate these letters it's what I have to do because 49 um, is the number of days that the soul wanders the earth looking for answers before the afterlife and it meant that this was the very last thing for me to do was to read these letters again and understand what happened our relationship and it became the sort of heart of the memoir in terms of laying out in her letters how much love guilt joy she has and um, in my own sort of narrative and trajectory in the book how how dark and demeaning and self-demeaning it is to understand the two extremities side by side to even get a glimpse of what that sort of family dynamic is like, how deep that love can be, and how deeply painful the abandonment can be. Mm -hmm. As I was reading the letters and reading your narration, the thing that I repeatedly thought about were the same things that a person asks you at the end of the memoir in this great scene, where these questions, these obvious questions, right? Why didn't your parents uh, make you come with them? Why didn't Owen stay behind? (laughs) What are all of these other possibilities that could break out into so many different directions? And yeah, I think as I was reading a lot of those um, sections where I felt particularly angry, where, you know, your mother apologizes, sorry for um, leaving you behind. And I would have this knee-jerk reaction that's almost similar to what I have towards my own parents sometimes, where it's, you know, like, it wasn't my choice. It's what you uh, decided. It's your fault. I would have those reactions. They're not, you know, the best rational reactions, I guess. But I thought a lot back to our interview with Ken Liu, which is the first episode of this podcast series, where he says, there are a thousand ways to say I love you in a family. There are also a thousand ways to hurt somebody in a family. And that's when I started to realize, like, underneath the reactions that I had while reading the memoir, you know, some of that is also founded on general assumptions about what love is and miscommunication, I guess, of those actions. Because, you know, for, in their perspective, it's probably, this is the way to show the most love for you, right? So I'm still trying to understand a lot of that within my own family, but how did you kind of uh, come to terms with this mismatch of language? I mean, your memoir is called The Magical Language of Others, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Mismatch of languages, whether it be through actions or through words. It's really interesting. When I began my research, it was on linguistics, and then it sort of led me to discourse analysis, which is a really broad term for understanding the way we communicate with one another, how people speak to one another, and it can be visual or verbal or whatnot. But I remember I stumbled across this phrase, and it said it it was something like, even to this day, um, and what we know in modern times with language is that because every single word has such a multitude of shades and meanings. For instance, if I say the word cup, you and I will not imagine the same cup, right? Um, Every single word has such a network of meaning, and that those networks have networks, right? And they have such crossover and personal ties to our own lives and experiences that when one person communicates with another, it's never that we fully understand each other. And the fact that Yet, we're able to teach one another, that we're able to fall in love with one another, that we care deeply for each other. It's sort of like a magic. It's magical, the way that that works. I remember that line sticking with me, and I think is 
is the basis of a lot of my questioning in the memoir and also for the title, The Magical Language of Others. The language is magical even within one language, but there's the obvious. Um, you, you see Korean, Japanese, and English across the memoir. But I remember when I learned that, it really, really stayed with me. It sort of messed me up, to be honest, for about two years. <laughs> because it seemed like, I mean, it seemed like I knew this instinctively, that this was true. And I had waited my whole life for somebody to say it and to finally um, put into words something I, I didn't know how to articulate. And that's what it felt like. I thought, that's it, you know, like I want to understand my mother and her decision, my father and his past. I want to. And they sit down and they tell me and they explain over and over again. But I can't ever get to zero, if that makes sense. My questions never get down to zero. And it goes the other way around. This relationship isn't a one-way force. It's dual-sided in that they can ask me so many things and so many times about my feelings and how I am and, and the way I live and do my daily tasks. And their questions never get to zero. They will never truly, truly understand me. But I found that at first it felt heartbreaking, but later it felt like a guide, like a, a way for me to go into the memoir and have each chapter answer a question that I and I think that's how we get some of those wonderful chapters of my mother as a daughter, because how will I know her if I don't know her not only as my mother, but as somebody else's daughter, as somebody that was precious and abandoned by somebody else? I think it leads and guides a lot, this magical language and trying to understand and get as close as I can. And I think that takes a bit of magnanimity, which comes up in the book. It was the very first lesson I'd ever gotten in poetry. It leads my poetry to this day because it, magnanimity is the sort of phrase you need to complete a turn, which is the last line of a poem. And I found it's also what I need to understand my mother and understand how this memoir needs to work. Is it's not it's not going to go anywhere if I can't face these questions in her and myself with magnanimity. I think in the beginning I was really concerned with I don't want to write a book to uh, an American audience that they don't have any pathway into understanding these choices. You know, and to my mother and father, they don't regret this decision, and I think that seems hard to believe, but once you read the memoir, you can understand a little better why. You can understand their decisions and choices and how they're living their lives. So I think all of that contributed. Mm -hmm. I read that section at the end where somebody asks you all of these questions and it's kind of abruptly cut off. Uh, cut off as in, you know, you don't really, you don't have like a thorough response to that person's question. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cut off. Was that intentional? Um, what well, kind of went into deciding to put that at the end instead of uh, earlier on? Right, right. So... I remember I almost cut that chapter, but I really, really wanted to keep it toward the end. I thought, oh, this memoir is not quite complete without it, because it was a real experience I had at a writing fellowship, and it was the first time I'd read, you know, I was far from working on it as a memoir at the time. It, wasn't, it was never intended to be a memoir. It was intended to be a book of translation. And I was, it was the first time I was reading her translation, the letters, and that was the response I had received, and it was the, you know, a lot of 
questions similar to, you know, like, why didn't they just take you? Why didn't they come back at one point? And these are very obvious questions, I think. And those were the questions I had asked, you know, if someone had asked me those questions at the beginning of the memoir, at the beginning of when they left, my response would be very different, right? But I think they're there and they're sort of my answer to those questions are very quiet because I, I've learned to sort of look beyond those questions after all. My grief was that I was born and raised here. I have the expectations of what a family is and what my parents ought to be and do for me. And it's, you know, my parents didn't grow up in a place like that or even at a time where that was possible. And so for them, it was, it was more important to support their family and to sort of go after a, a further financial gain for their family than it was to, to be together. And I think the grief came in the cross and the these expectations that seemed to fail for me. I mean, if I really look back, it's not... It, yes, you know, there's a lot of pain and um, self-harm that came with them going to Korea and leaving. But there was also a lot of pain in sort of when I would see my neighbors get together or, you know, their school events and... The parents would come and see their kids or they would, you know, say, do you want to come over for dinner? And I'd be like, no, I don't, I don't want to see that. <laughs> or um, they'd come pick up their kids from school and all the other kids at school. I just, you know, at that point, I, I wasn't making any friends. It was, I think, I, I believe I was going into sophomore, end of sophomore at that point into a new, new high school that was a largely white high school. It was really difficult for me to get along. It was a complete shift in a cultural setting as well. And so it was this environment around me that I would constantly feed that sort of pain and anger um, rather than the act itself. And I couldn't get over it. I couldn't find a way to be my own person. I was just a ball of of pain, really. Mm. I think that in the quote that I had mentioned from Ken about the kind of cultural expectations about how a family should be or how you express love in a family, um, yeah, he mentions that that's the cause of a lot of the internalized racism and kind of the pain that we suffer as a result of that. Mm -hmm. I also forgot to mention as a very, very quick, more lighthearted kind of uh, coincidence, another coincidence is actually if you look on our Instagram page, this is not like a shameless plug. Um, if you look on our Instagram page, uh, there's a photo with Paul meeting Ken at this uh, book event in DC. And actually in the very bottom, I think right hand corner of the image, there's actually a picture of your book, <laughs> this memoir. Oh. Um, I forgot to mention that, but it's a very, very interesting coincidence. That's also why I had brought up the quote initially, but I forgot to mention that. So if you're interested, check that out. Kind of a shameless plug, but also kind of an interesting plug too. <laughs> um, but uh, bringing it up back, what my favorite thing that you said was about magnanimity and being generous toward the situations determined by people, you know, our parents and those before them, um, these situations that they've decided that we have no control over, you know, you can react with anger and knee-jerk reactions, or you can decide to be a bit more generous and explore um, explore what they might have gone through with that generosity. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think that there is ever an end to that process of being generous? Or do you think that it's just like a conscious every day I have to remind myself to be um, generous to those decisions. That's really funny. It's a good question. And I feel like what I want to say is if I was constantly generous and the whole world was so generous and filled with magnanimity, I don't know if 
I would be a writer. I don't know if I, I would need to read books, and I don't know if books would need to be written. Mm. It, it seems like because it is something to learn again and experience again in in different areas of your person and your life and your experiences and and other people and and what you can do for other people. I think. I think it it makes writing more necessary because it is something that needs constant looking at and pointing at, trying to get through the sort of really really darker parts to find、um, an edge of light. And I think、um, I've spoken about this sort of briefly before, but a lot of the research and reading and interviewing I do is with people. Who, Who have been through a,、uh, some sort of historical atrocity or trauma, and the reading I do is is a lot of their stories. And、um, at the same time, I remember、uh, people would ask me, "Well, what what do you do if all you're reading and speaking and writing about is so so sad?" And I don't think that's the case. I don't think I'm writing about sadness and speaking to it because what we Sort of sit around and talk about all day is love. We talk about how one has come through that, how you can see beyond these. I mean, they are just terrible experiences. You would never think that we would sit around and everyone would want to talk about love, but that's what they do want to talk about. And I've found that in myself again and again that the deeper and darker places also have like necessitates. This、uh, equally deep and great amount of love that's right there. It really is on the other side. So initially, when I first started sort of research and I would write poetry about some of the testimonials I would come across, it was painful because I couldn't see the other side. It, it was it was just、uh, it felt inhumane and it felt damaging to me in my own life and my own relationships to be around this all day. But once、uh, something shifted in me, when I realized that this—that's not what it's about. Though that's what you sort of get through to the other side, and getting through to the other side is what you leave behind. It's what you leave behind for forthcoming generations, for other children, for other kids, anyone else who wants to be a writer,、um, especially younger writers. Like you, you want to leave something behind. I really like what you said about how. Writing is necessary because it's almost like a practice of magnanimity.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about—I mean, I have the book right next to me, so I was staring at the book as you were speaking. And I was thinking about how—I mean—the letters are spliced throughout your narration. And I kept thinking about how maybe、um, each of those letters that your mother had to write—you know—those are all acts of generosity too, in her own way. You know,、mm-hmm. you have to sit down and remember and focus your attention on somebody else to write something. Yeah, I think that's a very Important takeaway too is being generous, being loving. I guess is a constant practice, but it's not something that's、uh, out of our reach at any point.、Mm-hmm. And I think from there,、uh, I did want to return to something that you had mentioned before about language and about how we can't ever fully understand.、Um, on the one hand, we can't fully understand the decisions people make on our behalf,、mm-hmm. uh, whether they be parents or other people. But we also, on an even more introspective level. You literally cannot understand what somebody else is thinking、mm-hmm. fully, right?、Mm-hmm. With that cup example you brought up, so I did want to just touch on that a little bit. And one of my favorite lines from your memoir was, 
It's a very simple sentence. The content is not very difficult, and yet it uh, put into words something that I had experienced a lot.、Um, and it's seeing one another seemed unnecessary when you live together. That kind of estrangement that you have with the people that should be the closest to you,、mm-hmm. right? They're your family that you should know them the best, and yet. Um, sometimes that can lead to a complacency where you don't actually ask as many questions, or you put them into roles like, "Oh, I'm a mother; you're the child." The letters kind of dictate those roles, right?、Mm-hmm. I'm a mother writing to my child. At no point, well, in the letters that we have in the book, it never becomes peer to peer, like we are on the same level. So, just on this topic of estrangement in a family, I don't think that's. I mean, it's obviously. Exacerbated if you have a family separation situation, but also I think it's true for any family, any people. I was wondering, could you actually read this section? Or oh, yeah, I can read that. Your poems are about Korea, aren't they? Everybody wanted to ask me questions. They were so nice to me. All these people said, "I'm so happy to meet you, Mrs. Ko." What did you say? I was still afraid, falling until her next words. Even if what you fear is not happening, your body and mind cannot tell the difference. What's wrong? I told them my daughter is a poet. She said, and I'm her mommy. When I stepped back from her, she looked hurt. What else? I asked and snatched the folder out of her hands. What else do you know? I really like how this section ends on that question of what else do you know. I I found this. Scene to be my favorite scene throughout the whole、uh, memoir, where you acknowledge that she doesn't know,、mm-hmm. like she knows barely anything about you. Essentially, you're like, "What else do you know?" This is because you know my daughter is a poet. That's like level one understanding of somebody. <laughs>、um, and it's like, "What else do you know?" It's like, "Oh, that means you really don't know anything." And yeah, I was wondering how you thought about these roles that we play. I guess well, there, I watched this film at the Seattle Asian Art.、Uh, Film festival, something like that,、um, where there's one film called Zoetic about a Cantonese mother who starts trying to go on dating apps, and then the younger daughter is trying to help her. And there's a line in there that where she says,、um, "You're so busy like being my mom that I can't, you know, see you as a human being, or you won't let me see you as a human being." How did you kind of? I mean, I guess that's something that you still manage throughout today. But how did you manage that as you're writing the memoir, where you knew that these letters were static instances?、Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the narrative was not static, so how did、mm-hmm. you kind of manage that? It's very interesting. I think with my mother's letters, her repetition of "mommy" stands out, and it sort of cues that she's speaking to me like a small child. Like "mommy" wants Nji to be happy, so "mommy" can be happy. And I, I tend to attribute this to her desire to be a mother to me. Her mothering me from a distance and across an ocean. What does it look like to be mothered from a distance, and for her to try and make me feel like、um, my mother is here? And so I think something like using "mommy" was important because the Korean for that is "omma," as you know. But it it didn't sound like "mom." It sounded like "mommy," and so that's sort of my reading of her letters and the way she she fills that role with sort of. Not unconsciously, right? I think she does it、um, with intent and with importance because perhaps there is a sense that with distance you you become less of a thing to someone else. But I think my experience was almost the opposite. It's like the farther she was away and the, let the less she was my mommy, but sort of the more she 
there's the possibility of her being something else, you know, a, a young woman with decisions, with a past that wasn't reconciled, with a whole family she had left for about 17 years in, in South Korea, which she couldn't, she couldn't help them, you know, they, they needed her help desperately and she wanted to go back. So it's as if the farther she was away, the closer I listened and the, the more I wanted to know and Although it took that sort of hurt and grief, it was through that that I could see her in another way. And I and I at one point had to choose to stop my own suffering. I think at that point, it, at, at a certain point, it was just a choice. I, I was hurting myself um, deeply, thinking it wasn't hurting anyone else. Or maybe I thought it was, but it's interesting. When, when we are reunited back in Seattle, I think I expected it to be such a, a wonderful event and many people must think that too but it was quite difficult i came back to seattle and i had a horrible episode of depression um my last one was in new york city it was very bad and then when i came to seattle there was one it didn't make it into the memoir but you kind of get a shading of it of how bad it was for me and i just didn't know how to speak to them i knew how to read their words and i knew how to see them and imagine them from a distance but it was it was almost like we had to completely restructure and relanguage ourselves in order to be a family that now lives together i would say it was strange it was the sort of mother i saw on in these letters was not the mother that appeared before me and um, same goes for my father you know he doesn't make it too much into the book but i think you know i i when he was away i was sort of terrified and worried for him and when he came close it was like all i felt was resentment it, it did seem like living together it there was no point there was no point in, in in keeping up with one another so that it wasn't my intention but like you said it seems to really be a commentary on what just being together as a family like the things you might take for granted right and how easily i took it for granted almost the day that we were together again it's uh a complete loss and disconnect but i think where we are now we are doing so much better and um my relationship with my family has really done so well especially over these past few years and through the publication of this memoir their support of me and for me and for this memoir and their um, willingness to give me the space and the voice to to say my my story for them to also acknowledge that um even if from them it, the perspective is different, the events themselves are are the same. That's really, really important, and that makes me glad, you know. Mm -hmm. The sections that you write about your mother and grandmother, where I think uh, you write from their perspective almost, or it's a very close narration. Mm -hmm. How I was also this is also more of a technical question, but I was curious as to how you went about writing that because they're probably. I mean, I'm assuming that they're imagined. So how mm -hmm. did you, like, what did you use to anchor yourself in creating these, uh, I don't want to say fictional versions, but, you know, imagined uh, versions of what your parents and grandparents went through? Right. Both the the instance with my mother and her mother, with June and Lee, her parents, and my grandmother's story with her mother and father who was stoned in the our father was stoned in the Jeju Island massacre i mean both of those are stories i've heard since i was very young and it's very interesting um the way oral history goes the way it's sort of passed down because 
if in the case I'm looking for those historical records, those official records, a lot of them are gone. And um, when I'm looking for sort of the living witnesses, they've also passed on. And so we have what what's left is are these oral histories and my moments with um, my grandmother towards the end of her life. Uh, my grandmother as in um, my father's mother, whose memories of the Treasure Island Massacre. But I, I kind of, do, you know, I do the sort of method of invisible tracing, which is you, you begin where you can because there is so little. I think that's really important, which is go around that historical event, look at what's said in um, sort of a Korean historic like history textbook. And then if, you know, what helps is if you you feel like comfortable in enough languages, you can see what it's, how, the way it's written in, in a Japanese history textbook and in the way it might come across in sort of an American history textbook and, and read it, you know, like triangulate those things. Uh, it's somewhat like detective work, but it really is just intuitively following, following, reading, reading, triangulating those languages, those histories, and then looking at revisionist histories. What are the histories that people are saying was left out? or what are the parts that people are correcting, right? Like, uh, I know the number of those killed in the Kanto massacre, which is um, in the beginning part of the story with my grandmother. I mean, that's a disputed number, right? A lot of those things are disputed, even with, within my own family, you know. For the Jeju Island massacre, there's disagreement in my own family about exactly who, who stoned my grandfather, my great-grandfather. And um, that's important. It's, a, it's important to sort of signal those things and leave room. But, you know, I have to put all those things against not only sort of like the factual, the timeline that I'm creating from everyone's birth to their death, but also I have to start leading with my my own understanding and my own contribution to this. So yes, I've, you know, I've, I've made decisions and I've sort of summoned the effort to to see and and see around what my grandmother's experience must have been like or my you know to embody the experience of my mother you know the story she told me again and again of her mother leaving her um embody what that must have been like for her and that by the way is very much informed by my abandonment uh, those feelings i have toward my mother and my grandmother's stories are are very much um um, shaded with that too, understanding a different type of mother-daughter relationship. And so I would say there are three or four things, three or four layers that are, are so important to try and get to. You know, the oral history, those bedtime stories I heard, those are just as important as whatever information I can find, whatever, whatever histories I can find, the way they're told across different languages, and whatever disparities I can find. I'm And, and to bring that all together and at the end of the day say, like, how do I, you know, I, not as just a researcher, as a daughter, but how, how do I want to tell this story and do that? But I think one, one thing I would say is that I, I am... Um, what I hope to do is sort of open the door in, in a one way to look at this. I would, you know, anytime on this book tour was really wonderful meeting other people with their own family histories and their own sort of traumas. And all I can do is encourage them to tell it, you know, because mine is just this one piece of such a large kaleidoscopic detail of an event that so many other people can add to. And I've tried to sort of bring together what I know and what I have and hoping that other people can can add to it. Mm -hmm. I think your answer to that question combined with the answer to the previous question where you talk about how when you were reunited with your family, it wasn't this suddenly we're all good, you know, like everything is fine now. It's not this uh, 
TV show moment of reunification, it's a lot of, there's a lot to unpack in terms of what was, what had gone missing during the time that you were separated. And bringing that together with your very, very extensive response about research and triangulation and all of the work that goes into imagining, you know, what it was like to be someone in your family. Um, and I guess negotiating or like weighing the different versions of that every, I mean, everybody has different versions of themselves, whether it be um, as a mother, as a daughter, and as a poet, et cetera. But trying to triangulate all of those, not just through research, but also through different languages, I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that as you were on your book tour, a lot of people were inspired by that and wanted to, hey, I can, anybody can do this. It just requires a bit of time. And I guess the theme in this episode is generosity, magnanimity mm-hmm. to, put in that work to get across uh, the divisions that I guess in a, like the standard I don't want to say standard because it sounds too mathematical but the given baseline inability to truly understand another human being like I think that's magnified I guess as I'm listening throughout this conversation conversation is that's magnified in a family where it's actually it's almost like paradoxical where it's assumed that you should know everything like <laughs> you are my daughter or whatever I know everything about you but that's you know never the case with anybody. So I think teasing out that kind of paradox is really interesting and would love to keep speaking about that longer, but just to respect time, I was going to move into a little bit of uh, your experience with language learning. I think a lot of people are interested in that, especially because a lot of our uh, other episodes have to do with uh, geopolitical situations that, you know, sometimes really benefit from knowing another language. Could you actually read the quote where you talk about learning Japanese? That was also one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was strict about my Japanese. Before dawn, I left my hotel room in Okachimachi, careful not to wake my roommate, but sleep was scant on five-foot-long beds where I lay diagonally on my left or right side, switching every other day. Near the train station, an indoor mall opened its shuttered gates. Through the gates, I entered an empty coffee shop with a canopy of hanging vines. On a high stool at the coffee bar, I memorized ten pages of my Japanese dictionary, copying down two hundred words. There were six thousand words altogether, divided into categories, eating, driving, home, and others. After three hours, I smoked a cigarette as I walked on the uphill road to the train station and headed toward Chinanomachi. When school let out, I returned to the coffee shop to go over my pages in the evening. How close the words sounded to my ear as I spoke them. I would learn the language the way one might learn a person. I think that this section really jumped out at me um, because it kind of captures the isolating experience of number one, not knowing a language, and number two, living in a foreign country. I guess just that whole scene I could see myself in where while I was living in Korea, um, in this countryside town during the first year, I went to a lot of coffee shops put in a lot of work reading or studying um, Korean or studying anything really just to just to do something with my isolation. And I was wondering if that was part of your motivation while you were studying Japanese was that isolation. And that's also another kind of paradox where languages are not supposed to be uh, learned in isolation, right? But sometimes because you don't know the language, you have to. So yeah, what was your kind of feeling towards uh, language learning at that time? And then has that changed? recently Mm -hmm. oh i i really like i really (laughs) like this passage and i don't often get a chance to talk about it it's interesting because the other there are a few other parts in the memoir where i 
I sort of wrote it very quickly. It sort of came out like a, a leap of fire, and my desire to edit it was very small. I sort of wanted it to be out there the way it is, and if there was editing, it was for more aesthetic reasons. But this this passage, I remember um, just spending so much time on it. Um, this chapter, um, this scene, is, is very similar to the first chapter of the book in Davis, where I just agonized over every single line and every choice like even calling it hanging vines instead of morning glory or looking at my japanese dictionary again and trying to figure out exactly how many words are in there looking at the categories thinking about which ones to include if you look at the categories it's eating driving and home and if you look at the whole memoir um those are where sort of my traumas lie it's an eating in my um sort of bulimia and then at this point i'm starving myself right and driving is sort of the violence and there's only one instance in the memoir but in you know that made it into the memoir but in my life there have been several where my mom either jumped out of the car threatened to and so drive and and my brother being a sort of i guess in his own way part of the bay area culture is is you know cars and fixing up cars and his the way he would drive, you know, um, when I was young, it was terrifying and terrifying to me and home being a third one. I mean, if you really look at this passage, every, every little thing, um, even the way I'm sleeping on these, uh, they were, they're very small beds. I, I'm over five foot seven. I'm, I guess I'm nearly five foot eight. I, I'm pretty tall. Um, and just the way the things don't fit me, right? But I never feel more at home or cozy. And I think it's because um, when I was living in Davis, I, I lived in a room. I didn't live in a house. I didn't live at school. I shut myself in um, months at a time. It, it was a sort of experience that will make a certain type of person a young girl at the time. And so I was so used to isolation. If anything, that's that's where I'd become comfortable. And it's here when I'm learning Japanese that I the effect is the opposite. It's like now that I'm learning a new language, I finally feel consoled by something. And that something isn't a human being, but it's a language. And this language is giving me a chance to explain myself, to say how I feel or think, which is sort of, it's like a feeling of being blocked, you know, your, your throat being cut off. And learning Japanese for some reason was, was helping me feel understood and helping me feel like I can... I, I can say something and I want to. But as you go deeper into that chapter, you, you see that I, I can't isolate myself for very long. It, it ends up being the community around me that they, they sort of adopt me and they teach me and, and everyone wants me to learn Japanese after sort of seeing my raging dedication to it, um, such as not, uh, I mean, I wouldn't suggest to anyone to not eat in order to learn a language, but that's where my head was at the time. It was nothing else was more important to me, uh, not even my life, which was actually a very low cost. Um, not Nothing was more important than learning this language. And through that language, what I learned was how to let people in and how to be a part of a group of people, which I hadn't experienced before. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate a little bit more on why it was so important to learn a language, uh, to learn Japanese, I guess? That's really interesting. Or was I... it for no other reason than to occupy yourself? Which is, I mean, that's mm -hmm. something that I did, I'm familiar with, is when you're isolated, it's just, I don't want to, you know, live 
uh, underneath this isolation. So I'm just, I don't want to stare this isolation in the face. So I'm going right. to immerse myself in something. Right. It's interesting because my grandmother, who largely raised me when I was very young, because both of my parents were working quite a bit and they sort of had these graveyard shifts, but it was my grandmother, Kumiko in the memoir, who took care of me. And I noticed early on that she would speak in Japanese, but very rarely and not in the company of other Korean grandmothers who loved and adored her, who she trusted deeply and not in the company of my parents really. But it was almost like if it was just us two or she was visiting the grocery store and we would go to the counter. Um, it was an old sort of Japanese market at the time called Yaowan and she would talk to the um, ladies that worked there in Japanese. And I think that was a very early impression for me that uh, of curiosity and of wanting to learn and know this language that seemed very much a part of me. It seemed like, um, you know, growing up in a household where there's Korean, Japanese, and English, but everyone wants you to learn English. So the more English I learned, the more I was, uh, you know, driven apart from my family. If I learned Japanese, my grandmother would be scared. And for my parents, if I would try to learn Korean, I was abandoning my sort of duty to make it in America through my English. And I think it turned out that I just didn't know that much Japanese, but parts of it felt innate to me. And so when I decided I, I need to study abroad somewhere, I just need to leave. I, I wanted to go to Tokyo and I really wanted to take my time there and learn it. And maybe in hindsight, it was a way for me to say, maybe I can't express myself in Korean and English the way I can in Japanese. So maybe I ought to try. Uh, another thing might be, is this a way for me to get closer to my past? Or is this a way to really escape the life I had been living in the States? I think there's sort of a myriad of reasons, but at the time it felt like I was willing to to do everything for this, like there was nothing else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm also learning Chinese in Seattle right now these days, starting from zero. Um, and I think there is a liberating feeling of entering a new place. I know that you're not traveling, but it feels like you're... It's liberating to be in a place where, you know, it doesn't matter if I sound dumb right now. <laughs> um, this is a new language that doesn't have the accumulated weight of what you said before, right? Different words have different weight accumulated to them based on our personal experiences. And when you enter a new language, it's just everything is free, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is new. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it gives you that chance to start over. And I think that, yeah, that's really um, appealing. And I think, I mean, what when I sort of speak to, to my husband, we speak um, across languages. We speak English, Korean, and Japanese. And it's really fascinating because the Japanese we, words we use, it's because we feel like the other two languages don't have this word exactly that way. And sometimes I could, I'll describe a moment in Korean and he'll understand that better because the sort of tone and the color and texture of that word in Korean seems to best describe it. And, and same goes for the English. It, it's very interesting because you know, my, my current interest in the language has to do with what's translatable and what's not translatable. This untranslatability is interesting because, you know, when you learn another language, it allows you to learn more about people and the expressions we use. And sometimes you learn an expression that is that doesn't have a word in the languages you might know. And so that becomes really, really useful and helpful 
to to embody a new experience or to to call it something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so for anybody listening, go learn a language. But um, the last question that I had for you was just, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your letter project and what that means to you, how you came to it? Um, and I really like that letter project, which you can describe, but um, I really like it because it's kind of uh, on this podcast, we speak a lot about, hey, we're doing a lot of this intellectual lifting about everything in the world right family Mm -hmm. geopolitics but also what can we physically do and i like how the project is something that's actionable so um, yeah could you tell us a little bit about it and then um what it means yeah a few years ago i started what is now called the love letter project i just one late night i went on twitter and i said uh you know i'd like to write a thousand love letters by hand to strangers and if you want a love letter from me, just tell me a bit about yourself or maybe tell me about what you're going through, a struggle or a question, and your physical mailing address. And I've been doing that ever since. They're always two pages long, and I didn't notice this until someone else pointed this out to me, but they said, how long were your mother's letters to you? And I said, oh, they're always two pages. It, it seems to be interesting because I began the love letter project sort of not thinking of that connection, but it was during a time when I questioned whether I needed to write at all, if I can find another way to do or to find out what it is I really can offer. And I thought, aside from writing poetry books or memoirs or, you know, working on other projects, when it comes down to what I want to do and can do is write love letters to people. And so I just sent three off this past weekend. I'm going to work on more now, especially because I have a sort of inbox of I'm way, way behind. I'm about two, three months behind because I've been getting so many requests. But I think I sent a love letter 110. This is something I want to do for the rest of my life. I think it's one of the most important things that I do is, is I know the value of a letter. I know what it can do for somebody and what it's done for me. And I, I know sometimes I'll get emails about, well, can we write you a love letter? And I think, well, that really sort of is in the wrong direction, right? I would love to write you a love letter. And it's not for you to write me a love letter. It's for you to write somebody else. Mm-hmm, and yeah. and maybe to write it to the person you want you, you least want to write one to, to challenge yourself. And I think that's important, this sort of maintaining this human connection, um, maintaining this sense of care and practice is, is important. And when people ask, you know, I, I don't write these. I, I spend quite a bit of time on the love letters and I don't write them to give advice or or give answers to questions it's more like um what the way i understand the way i want to approach this is if they were sitting across me at a, at a coffee shop at a table what would i say you know what would i do as their their friend and say and just to say i understand and i hear you and sometimes when i get requests for these love letters they more often than not at the end of that request is they're just saying thank you for even the chance of writing what was on my mind to get it out. Like even this is, is something for me. And I get the joy of responding to them and making that experience a little more complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the way that it's, well, what you described about it being unidirectional, where by you sending it out, you know, it creates a 
kind of chain reaction where somebody else sends something else out. And instead of replying back, which is the normal thing to do, um, sending it forward, I think, is uh, really cool. And I think, as you were speaking, I was thinking about why letters have more value to me than um, emails, for example. I think emails are also fine sometimes if it's a long email. um, And I know that they put work into it. But sometimes, you know, one of the greatest surprise joys that you can have is a postcard in the mail or something. And I guess for me, it's just knowing that somebody had put their put aside whatever 30 minutes to an hour writing um, and dedicating their attention solely on me. I think that's um, something that, you know, we can't take for granted. Whereas if it's an email, I mean, a long email, maybe it's okay. But in general, if it's an email, I know you have five, six tabs open, you know, and your (laughs) other apps open. So yeah, I think that's about it. Do you have anything else to add? Mm, Well, I I just want to say thank you for reaching out and having this conversation with me and giving me the chance to talk through a lot of these parts of the memoir and getting a chance to contemplate them and also hearing your story about how you came to the memoir. And I think at the moment in which you collided with the memoir, it really became your story and um, where you want to go next with it. And so good luck to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, And hopefully see you soon in Seattle. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Divided Families podcast. If you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project, please follow us on social media at Divided Families Podcast. Thanks as always to Final Albert for the wonderful music and see you next time.